You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. When I, I just wanted to share with you all, when, when someone does a chapel, the chapel team asks for this chapel packet. And so you fill out some information. I just wanted to share with you a few things in that that we normally don't share. One is the title. Uh, seldom do I, I share a chapel title, but I think it's relevant today. So the, the title of my talk is The Something More of Sex. The Something More of Sex. And there are different things that you write about in this packet. And I was writing about the mind of Christ and being transformed by our mind. And I think this is really important because what we're seeking to do in this space is, is to, as responsibly as we know how, apply a biblical ethic, a biblical mindset to a contemporary issue. And your con- context, our context, is one that is, is very sexualized. We're in a, a very sexualized kind of moment and the content and context we, we see and enter into. Uh, but we don't often talk about those things in a sacred or dignified way. So this is my, my humble attempt to do that with you this morning so that we can practice that together. So several years ago, I was in graduate school and I came across an article that really grabbed my attention. And it was about a a young lady in New Zealand uh, who went by the name of Unigirl. And she entered into an online auction there, similar to what what we would have here as eBay. And she had an unusual auction. She was auctioning her virginity. And she was not under coercion or economic distress, according to her, she had a job, but she said, I want to earn as much money as possible, as quickly as possible, to pay for school and and other things like that. And furthermore, she said, as long as some basic safety requirements are met, I'm willing to auction my virginity to the highest bidder. So the the webpage had almost 30,000 views, 1,200 offers were made to Unigirl, and the winning offer was $45,000 in New Zealand currency, which in the United States at that time was about $36,000. The interesting thing was a lot of media outlets were, were curious, did she really go through with this? And they contacted the auction site, and the webmaster said this, the transaction has been completed. Now, I find this example to be interesting because of the questions it raises. I I find this very unsettling and alarming. I hope you do too. But interestingly, if you only evaluate the auction using some of our common moral guideposts, it would give you little to be alarmed about. For example, if you looked and said, is that even legal? Well, yes. It is legal in New Zealand. It's illegal in the United States, but it's legal there. If, if you took a utilitarian approach or kind of from the larger consequentialist ethic, ethical tradition, which says the rightness of an action is bound up in the consequence it produces, well, then you'd have to look at the outcome. She wanted money and she wanted it fast. She got money. And so under that tradition, 
you may have less to morally condemn about as it relates to, as it relates to the auction. And then, of course, there's what I would describe as something like a rights-based liberal or libertarian tradition. And under this tradition, uh, it's less about the consequence and it's more about was the action or was the exchange voluntarily entered into. In in, uh, detached economic terms, you might put it this way, two symmetrically informed rational agents volunteering into a mutually beneficial exchange that ex ante, which is Latin for before the fact, they believe will make them better off. So the most important thing here in this tradition is, was this exchange volunteered into, was consent evident? Was it, was it, uh, was consent there? And so if you, again, if you look at each of these traditions, they would have little to condemn with the sale. And yet, and yet, we know that sex is not something that that can be collapsed and packaged and commodified and sold in the same manner as most products and services and experiences. We know there's something more. And to borrow an expression from the philosopher Elizabeth Anderson, You might say that sex is a higher good whose multifaceted meaning is reduced and it's drained and it's disfigured when it is commodified. Again, there's something more to this. Now, when it comes to modern sexual norms, the last, this last moral guidepost, this rights-based liberal or libertarian tradition is perhaps the most frequently referenced tradition when it comes to some of the moral criteria we employ to navigate today's relational landscape. And I want to be very clear, being coerced is not a good thing. Volunteering into something is a good thing. Consent is good, and consent is important. But what I want to explore is what does this framework communicate about the value and the meaning of sex? And what does it communicate about the value of persons? And is that enough? Several years ago, there was a, a, what I found to be a strikingly vulnerable article written in the New York Times by a woman named Courtney Sender. And she was casting a light on today's impoverished sexual norms by describing her own disappointing experience. Her date was a a connection through Tinder, and he requested her consent for nearly everything, kissing and undressing and touching. Can I do this? He would ask. Are you okay? He would ask. And and in Cinder's words, the author's words, frequently pausing to ask permission, she thought venerated sex to something humanizing and hallowed. She said this, consenting was a beautiful thing he was teaching me, that we could be fully human to each other, checking in, honoring yes, and respecting no. She thought he was caring for her, respecting her. But the truth was he wasn't. After a few brief encounters with what seemed like a very caring and empathic individual, she never heard from him again. Wouldn't return texts, phone calls, and whatnot. She said, I was devastated. The aspirational virtues that you and I seek in our relationships, commitment, trust, sacredness, beauty, honor, respect, 
are often betrayed and risk being betrayed by less noble aims. She wanted love. He wanted insurance. She ends the article desirous of something else, something more. She writes this. I wish we could view consent as something that's less about caution and more about care for the other person, the entire person, both during an encounter and after, when we're often at our most vulnerable. Now, Cinder's article is more than, I think, just a cautionary tale. Her story is, is consistent with a whole host of people that was well-documented in another book by a woman named Christine Imba. And in this book, it's called Rethinking Sex, A Provocation. And I should mention, like Cinder's article, this book is not written to a Christian audience. This is not written to a religious audience. But she says this, our modern approach to sex is not working. The result is harrowing dates and lackluster encounters that leave us dissatisfied, depressed, repulsed, and even traumatized. If this is ordinary, she says, something is deeply wrong. She engages in first-person interviews, a lot of statistical trends and cultural analysis, and she documents the dissatisfaction experience not for a lack of sexual expression or liberation or consent, but as a function of it. Read this quote. She says, the unhappy stories my friends tell, the stories of college students and young adults I interview, these are not stories that are primarily about consent, about whether someone said yes loudly enough or had a clear no ignored. Rather, they're about care or lack thereof, about the responsibilities we have to each other. They're about the gulf between the relationships that people are seeking and the ones their social climate puts on offer. They're about what sex means, or at least what it should mean. Writing to the, the church in Corinth, uh, Paul uh, quotes one of their, their adages or one of the proverbs popular at that time, food for the stomach. Stomach for the food. And in other words, what this adage was meant to convey is that all appetites are equivalent. And Paul says this is a dangerously bad view. This is an inadequate view. In her book, Imba says this, modern sexual liberals have mainstreamed the idea that sex means nothing or at least not very much. In their understanding, sexual desire is a physical, biological urge that is pleasant to fulfill. It's just an appetite. It's just an urge. Food for the stomach. Stomach for the food. The theologian Sarah Coakley says, our culture has reduced sex to just genital acts. And moreover, she says, if sexuality and a sexual desire is just an urge, and all urges like food should be satisfied, then that makes something like celibacy seem monstrous to each other. So in a sexual landscape drained of moral significance and dominated by modern individualized assumptions, it's unsurprising that consent emerges as a criteria for establishing the boundaries between sex that is good and sex that is bad. Now again, I want to be very, I want to be very clear about this. I'm not saying that consent is wrong or bad or unnecessary. I'm saying quite the opposite. An unwanted advance is objectionable for just that reason. It's unwanted. 
Revelations from the Me Too movement a few years ago exposed a vast network of persistent and pervasive sexual misconduct across all sectors of society, and it's given a voice to otherwise silence victims of abuse. And in such an environment, the presence of consent, it would seem, is required to resolve what's appropriate and what is unauthorized in matters of sexual activity. More specifically, we see a lot of legislators today emphasizing what they call affirmative consent, a conscious, voluntary, and mutual agreement among all participants to engage in sexual activity. In other words, yes means yes, no means no. And solutions, I would tell you, are not just relegated to technology, or I'm sorry, to legislation. Several years ago, a, a spate of mobile phone apps came out. And this was kind of a, a technocratic solution to the problem from anything from questionable sexual hookups to the prevention of an assault. And the idea is that prior to some kind of sexual encounter, the app allows couples to sign a digital agreement rendering a legal artifact should some future dispute arise. We've seen educational institutions seek to incorporate notions of consent into their curriculum all the way into elementary schools. So consent's a good thing. Consent is a good thing. But it is the starting point for relational ethics. It's not the standard. Why? Because sex means something more. And this, this I would just say, was the fascinating dimension to me of Christine Imba's book. In her interviews, when she was asking people about what are the characteristics that would constitute a sex-positive environment, these are the words she heard. Listening, care, empathy, connection, and even the word transcendence. In other words, sex is not just inconsequential recreation or the satiation of an appetite. And the line between appropriate and inappropriate sexual norms cannot simply be drawn where consent is present. So in Matthew 19, we have this really fascinating exchange between the Pharisees and with Jesus. And, and you remember this. The Pharisees are interrogating Jesus about the legality of divorce. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason, is what they ask. And Jesus responds by pointing to the Creator's intention, where male and female will leave their respective families, and the two will become one flesh, not to be separated since they are joined together by God. Predictably, the Pharisees are dissatisfied with this answer, and they say, why then did Moses command that a man can give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus said, Moses permitted divorce because your hearts were hardened, but from the beginning, it was not so. So what's happening here? The, the Pharisees are asking Jesus a legal question, is di divorce permissible? And Jesus is responding by pointing them to God's design. And then again, they ask a question about permissibility, and then again, Jesus points them to God's design. In other words, Jesus is a rabbi. He's a teacher. This is his way of saying, you are asking the wrong question. This was not a matter of determining what was permissible. It was a matter of what was intended. It was not this way from the beginning. 
Jesus was less interested in quibbling over what was and was not technically admissible. Instead, he's redirecting his listeners to God's original design, the very essence of what it means to be in a relationship. In the Christian faith tradition, there is something more to love and relationships and sex than what's on offer in our present moment. Like what? So, I just want to share two things, two things with you that speak to the something more of sex within our tradition. First and foremost, sex is embodied. Now, that might sound like a stupid comment because we have sex with our bodies. That appears obvious. Yet we often understand our bodies dualistically, these kind of vehicles that we happen to have. In other words, we are a soul, we have a body. And by the way, this idea traces all the way back to early Gnostic thinkers, but it's not a Christian idea. I saw this earlier this year. You don't have a soul, you are a soul, you have a body. C.S. Lewis never said this, and it's probably not right. Sex is embodied, and the Christian tradition rejects the idea that our bodies are extrinsic to our personhood, and rather advances the self as an integrated being where internal states, such as thoughts and desires and feelings, correspond to our physicality. Sex is not just something we do, it's an act that is doing something to us. It's intricately woven into the nexus of physical, spiritual, relational, and emotional ways of being. Christine Imba says, intimacy makes claims on us. We can't leave ourselves. For example, attachment hormones like oxytocin and vasopressin are released in the body when couples have sex. These, again, these are hormones that attach us to other things. The Duke theologian Lauren Winner says, when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise. So there's a biological argument that points to the something more of sex. But there's also what we could call an ontological argument. This is ontology relates to our being, our existence, the essence of who we are, these kind of irreducible characteristics of what it means to be a human. Christianity teaches that we are created beings that inhabit a created order. You may have heard the, the Bertrand Russell said humans are just an accidental collocation of atoms. We don't believe that. We believe the opposite. We're, we believe that we're designed by a deliberate designer. Uh, if, you, if you ever had me in class when I was teaching, you would have heard Ephesians 2.10, the NRSV version. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepares beforehand to be our way of life. We're created on purpose, and therefore we have a purpose. We're teleological. So our bodies and their properties have this directional character, an understanding which is captured in the classical understanding of eros, which is the, the root expression of our modern ideas of eroticism or sexual desire. And so this is explained in a fascinating way in Plato's Symposium. So there's this story of, of a dinner party where the dinner guests have to tell a story about eros. You know, like most dinner parties where that happens. It's a joke. That went, went really well. And one of, the, one of the people telling the story, Aristophanes, tells a story of eros like this, that humans were once these like 
spherically conjoined creatures. Imagine like a big ball and having four legs and having four arms. But those spherical creatures upset the gods and as a punishment, the gods split them in half and the result is you and I today. And so Eros is always trying to reconnect, always trying to get back for completeness and for wholeness. In other words, as Rebecca DeYoung summarizes it, our sexual urges express our desire for completeness. When the former president, Dennis Kinlaw of Asbury, said that we are not self-made, we are not self-sustaining, we are not self-known, he said at that last point, it takes two of us to know one of us. He was making a, a statement that was in the current of eros, and not just completeness in a sexual sense, finding unity in a relational sense with others, finding unity and completeness in God, because that's what we are made for. And this is why historical saints like Teresa of Avila could describe her prayers to God as rapturous and erotic. And it's why St. Augustine, when he wrote his, his book, Confessions, which everyone should read, it's why it's a work about eros and desire, finding deep fulfillment and wholeness and completeness in God. So here, Plato is, is talking about eros as having a kind of divine quality. And to go back to Sarah Coakley, again, she says, early Christianity was enormously drawn to this picture of eros as having this divine feature to it. And let me just say, we know as a society all the horrors that occur when we instrumentalize one another. Is it not just as bad when we instrumentalize ourselves and our own bodies? Sex that is reductively recreational, instrumentalized, disattached, emptied of meaning, and self-focused belies the truth that you and I are embodied beings and that sex strums a complexity of strings across our multidimensional personhood. Even if we don't cognitively assent to the something more of sex, our bodies will. All right, that's number one, sex is embodied. Number two relates to our definition of love. Whatever, whatever definition of sex we have or however we think about it, it will accord with how we think about the concept of love. And I just want to say this humbly. I said this last spring. I think this is one of the more abused or freighted terms that we have. What does love mean? Now, on one hand, love means to have a, a favorable emotional reaction to something. And that's a good definition of love, right? Like, I, I, I love North Lime Donuts, and I, I love when Andrew plays bass. Like, I, I want to play bass when I see him do that. And I want hair, like he has. I love, I love Asbury Athletic. Like, I, I could go on and on and on, right? Uh, this favorable emotional reaction. That notion of love is not enough to sustain a relationship. We can't apply that to a relationship. I had an acquaintance years ago that um, was engaged to be married, uh, but he broke off the engagement, and his rationale was because his fiance no longer gave him butterflies. That, I mean, that, it's, a silly, it's a silly response, right? Um, we know that robust and praiseworthy relationships hardly rely on the flimsiness of butterflies. It relies on unwavering commitments. And further, if love is a mere feeling or 
emotional reaction in our relationships, then it can be separated from its appropriately lived expression. Rabbi David Wolpe has made the point that husbands who abuse their wives often have favorable emotional reactions toward them. Love is also used to convey what could be described as niceness. That is the unqualified acceptance of someone's idiosyncratic preferences. And based on this definition or understanding, to love someone is to non-judgmentally accept and celebrate their expressive individualism. But again, when we interrogate this idea of love, we'll find that it's problematic. Love that is uncritically accepting ironically carries more of the characteristics of indifference than a classical understanding of love. This is why C.S. Lewis calls this sentimental kindness. He says, I don't think I should value much the love of a friend who cared only about my happiness, but didn't care about whether I was honest or not. Stanley Hauervoss says, sentimentality names the assumption that we can be kind to each other without being truthful. Hauervoss says, that's a contradiction. Love is a positive emotional reaction or sentimental kindness. That's pleasant enough, but these are not necessarily the characteristics that inspire our hearts. These do not compel our deepest commitments. These do not bubble up into our most durable love stories that we have. And in contrast, the Christian tradition has advanced a far more demanding definition of love. Love exists here for another's good. Appealing to her readership, Christine Imba actually corresponds to an ancient definition of love. She says, we need something more demanding. And what does she pull from the shelf? The Christian definition. Quoting Thomas Aquinas, love wills the good of another. The sociologist Christian Smith says, love is self-expenditure for the genuine good of others. Paul Camacho, describing Augustine's complex understanding of love, says, love is a dynamic relationship with a good that exceeds the self. One of my favorite authors, Tish Harrison Warren, she was here last spring. She says, true love leads to death. It's a death to self. And Christopher West says, love by its nature seeks to expand its own communion. In other words, authentic love, it goes out. It never goes in. It's emptying. It's otherness. It's bowed outwards. The driving characteristic of this kind of love is the directional orientation toward the other. It's a movement of the soul. Augustine called this delight. Something outside the self. And niceness and kindness are admirable characteristics. I'm not belittling these things. I think they're super important. But they do not necessarily obligate us. And think about, think about deep, deep love that you experience or deep love that you witness with a friend, with a parent, a family member, with a romantic partner. This is to assume responsibilities that undertake actions that adhere to the obligations associated with our relationships. This is why Wendell Berry said, I love this quote, we have sought to free sexual love, but in freeing love from its old communal restraints, we have also freed it from meaning, and we've freed it from responsibility, and we have freed it from exaltation. I'm looking at the time. I, I wanna jump uh, a little bit ahead. Um, I don't wanna belabor the point, 
but I, I just want to have uh, two closing things. First and foremost, um, the something more of sex is love. It's self-giving love. It's sacrificial love. It's love that wills the good of another. It's love that's demanding and obligates us. And it's love that connects and love that binds us. And while this understanding of love and its sexual correlate correlate originates from within the Christian faith tradition. I just want to recognize with you that does not exempt the church from its own complicated history of disorderly sexual teaching or practices. You and I don't need to look far to find harrowing examples of sexual abuse that have occurred within the church. Some of my closest friends have experienced that. And all I can say to you is it is breathtakingly dark. In addition to abuse, some churches have been guilty of teaching a kind of sexual prosperity gospel, right? (laughs) Commit your ways to the Lord and sexual thrills will follow. And some within the church have experienced harmful messages or unintended consequences of wayward purity culture teaching. And some church teaching has unfairly placed the onus of sexual conduct on the woman. In other words, they are primarily responsible for controlling the lust of their male counterparts. These are harmful practices. These are harmful scripts that do not originate from a biblical understanding of sex. And I I also want to say, while it's important to recognize the something more of sex to, to a world that collapses its meaning, paradoxically, that same world elevates it as all-encompassing, as all-meaningful. And Imba points this out in her book, that even though we flatten sex, sometimes we also paradoxically ask too much of it, she says, that we've been asking for self-definition, self-actualization, and total fulfillment. The end game of life and, and if, you don't hear, if you don't hear anything else I said, please hear this. The end game of life is not sex or optimized sexual experiences. It is participation in the life of God. The end game of life is participation in the life of God. Again, I go back to Augustine and Augustine's confessions. And Augustine was no stranger to the world of sexual desires, delights, but he says this famously as he opens that book. You made us for yourself, and restless are our hearts, God, until they find their rest in thee. I love the Gary Wills translation of this. You prompt us yourself to find satisfaction in you. You made us tilted towards you, and our heart is unstable until it is stabilized in you. Thank you, Jesus, for stabilizing us. Hey, let me close. It was a little over two decades ago. Uh, there, there was a popular show. You've probably heard of it or watched it. Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Are you all familiar with? Okay. Eleven of you? No, I'm just kidding. Um, so there, there was a show that was created. It was a one-time show on Fox that was a play on that. And it was called Who Wants to Marry a Millionaire? And this predated uh, the, the Bachelor and the Bachelorette, but it was a similar idea. Uh, a rich bachelor, his name was Rick Rockwell, entertained 50 potential spouses to be, and he, he whittles them down in one show to a final bachelorette. And during the, the nationally televised courting process, Rockwell is hidden behind a veil, 
leaving the participants with little information other than knowledge of his fabulous wealth. The show, uh, which was hosted in Las Vegas, ended with uh, marriage signatures. Now, predictably, uh, the marriage was annulled shortly after the, the show concluded. But here's the unpredictable thing, and that was Rockwell's reaction. And I remember really being taken with that at the time. He said this after the, the annulment, I thought that if I met the right person, we'll get to know each other. We'll build a relationship together based on mutual respect and love and compromise. Later on, Larry King, he was asked, did he only expect good things from this show? And he said, I did. I really did. What Rockwell desired, let me be clear, was admirable. Who of us does not want good things from their romantic partner? Who does not want those very things that he mentioned, respect and love? The problem, Asbury, was that he sought to apprehend those goods from a show called Who Wants to Marry a Millionaire, which was a shameless mockery of the institution of marriage and the seriousness of its commitments. His search for a more demanding vision of love extended far beyond the show's limited grasp, an outcome that's not indistinct from the misguided contemporary stories we tell ourselves about love, romance, sex, and relationships. The aspirational virtues that are articulated by Rick Rockwell, by Courtney Sender, by those who filled the pages of Imba's book are not unlike the characteristics we all long for today. We yearn for love that is more demanding and obligatory and self-giving and soul-caring. But as their stories remind us, our cultural scripts often lead to unsatisfying experiences that leave us wanting and profane the goodness of love, sex, and relationality. I just want to say, I'm not here to wag a finger. I don't share these things wagging a finger. I don't share these things lamenting, eroding cultural norms or anything like that. Rather, I just share this as we have an opportunity. We have an opportunity as people of faith to narrate a different conception of love and sex and eros, or in Paul's words, to point to a more excellent way. I thought one of the most interesting quotes from Imba's book was this. She says, in some ways, sex is a paradox. It's the experience that situates us most completely in our bodies and the world, but it can also be the experience that gives us our sharpest taste of something beyond it. And often a sense of something more is what we really desire. Amen. There is something more to sex, an embodied biological, ontological desire for connection that finds its highest correlate in self-giving love.